has a half-life. You know what a half-life is? It's a video game. That's not what matters. Somebody does. What a half-life is, is a way to try to track decay in chemistry, knowing that everything about us is kind of falling apart, like even the atoms, especially the ones that are less stable. They just don't last. They just eventually turn into different kinds of things. The electrons and the protons or what have you, they, they just can't make it. So the half-life of various compounds and molecules means that eventually it's going to stop. And since we can't figure out when it will really stop because it stops on a curve, it stops faster and then slower toward the end. They can't tell you how long it'll be, but they can tell you halfway. Well, again, uh, your pain is a half-life. I can't tell you how long it'll be, but I can tell you that when Jesus Christ comes back, it'll be over. And that every decision you make from now to then should reflect that reality. Must reflect, will reflect that reality. Because that removal of your pain in, he is risen, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, given to your body as more than a promise. Right now it's a promise. It'll be given to your body all that day as more than a promise as experience. What that means is that nothing you face is so big as to be permanent. Nothing you face is so big as to be, in our language, the end of the world. In fact, even the end of the world isn't the end of the world for you. It's just the beginning of the better one. Your pain has a life half-life. Second major thought to take us through these texts today. I said this, I think, in an article a couple weeks ago in Voice of the Shepherd. It's not the number of the people, but the power of their prayers. Now, how do you know whether you as a people have powerful prayers. Huh. Well, then it is, in fact, not about even the people themselves, but what prayers they are praying. And in that regard, it's not even about what prayers you are praying so much as what God you are praying to. And again, what I'll tell you is that if you insert the name of Jesus Christ into the Psalter, you're praying to Jesus with all your heart without even trying. It just will start coming out. Jesus Christ gives justice to the oppressed. Jesus Christ opens the eyes of the blind. Jesus Christ raises those who are powed down. That's Psalm 146. Happy is he who has Jesus Christ as his God. That's Psalm 146 again. And that word happy now, I want to cling to for a moment. Just put that in your pocket for a second. Happy, what's that mean? But first, stick with the confidence that when you open the Bible to the Psalms and you take any of them on your lips and you declare them to be Jesus' prayers and you pray them with Jesus and under his shepherding, it is absolutely guaranteed that you will be blessed by this reality. These prayers themselves are the strength of Christianity activated with and for your faith. Now, let me be clear about this. Nobody believes because they decided to believe. Everyone believes because Jesus said, wake up. You're like, what? I'm awake. I'm awake. What's up, Jesus? He's like, read my Bible. I'm like, oh, I don't feel like it. That's where we are as a nation. Mm. The blessing is the actual words of the scriptures. Wake up's one of them. Stand firm is another one of them. Do not fret yourselves because of, because of evildoers. That's another one of them. These are good words. 
These are words you can live with, words you can talk to each other with and understand each other with. And we'll get to that in the Ephesians text today where Paul encourages us to believe that by learning to pray the Psalms and learning the songs of Scripture, the other parts of Scripture that are easy to memorize, the poetry, we will have blessed conversation amongst ourselves with such things. That is what Psalm 1 promises right off the bat. The very first thing it says You have to dive through verse 1 and 2 to get it, though. It's a long sentence. So I did it in the other order at the first service. For this service, we're going to go in a more American order. We'll we'll, we'll dance around the Hebrew. So open up Psalm 1. We're going to dig into this hard right now. And it'll be kind of our our introduction to the whole year in which we're going to be learning about a different book of the Bible every week. And it'll be an introduction to um, our, our hope for this corner and our life together that it's not just one year as a tree planted by streams of water to bring forth fruit, but that every season we are prepared, no matter what winds come and go, to be wise and bring forth the fruit of lips that confess Jesus' name with a text that never dies, with a story that never goes out, never vanishes. Yeah? All right. I'm sure I left something behind I should have talked about, but that's all right. Let's get into Psalm 1. Blessed is the man... Okay, I said happy, put it in your pocket, pull it back out, put it right there with the word blessed. Happy and blessed. Now, also, remember, happy is a weird word in English. Right? Like, I mean, are you, are you happy right now? Like, the way we would say it, you know, happy birthday. Like, it's, it, that's a strange feeling. It happens sometimes. Nobody can be happy all the time. Okay. The word here in the Hebrew, though, is the same word that other places will be translated as blessed. So what I want you to do, though, is not reject the word happy. That's what I used to teach. I want you to take the word happy back and know that the definition of happy is what it means to be blessed by God as a man. And what that means is what verse 2 says. You want to know what what happiness actually is? Not what the world says happy birthday is. What happiness actually is, is that a man whose delight is in the Torah. It says law there in English, but Torah is the Hebrew. I'm going to make a big deal about this because there's something we never want to lose and there's something we got to stop doing at the same time. What we never want to lose is the proper distinction between law and gospel. That is, as we Lutherans confess it, a particularly glorious light that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. It's not a ladder. It's not a a task you must achieve. It won't be done by your mouth, your mind, or your hands as your own thing. You can't save yourself. The law is truth. And the fact that all law that shows you what ought to be will also show you that you're not it. That's an amazing insight. Likewise, the gospel is the promise of Jesus, the proclamation of Jesus, the victory cry of Jesus. There is nothing for you to do or obey in the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to our distinction between law and gospel. There is nothing to do. It's done. It is finished. I said it already. He is risen. Hallelujah. What are you going to add to that? Nothing. It's gospel. It's promise. It's the power of salvation for all who believe it is true. And even that's been done to you by him. We don't want to lose that. But when you're reading the Psalms, you want to forget about that distinction when it comes to the word 
law. Because that's not what the Psalter is talking about. It's never talking about the proper distinction between law and gospel. When it says law, when it says Torah, it's always talking about all the Bible they had up to that point. All the Bible they had up to that point, that's what he means. Blessed is the man, happy is the man, whose delight is in all the Bible that we have up to that point. Now, we live at a time where what's in the Bible says stuff like this. In many and various ways, God spoke to his people of old by the prophets. You know the rest of it yet? But now, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So Jesus and his New Testament is very truly the closing article, the final statement, the time of grace uh, in the Bible as an end. What that means is he took everything that came before. He didn't deny any of it. He fulfilled all of it and teaches it so as you can be fulfilled in it as well. And his words complete it once and for all. That's what Torah means then again. So for David, writing a psalm, for him, Torah was five books of the Old Testament, all actually called Torah or Pentateuch in Greek, uh, but in Hebrew, Torah. Five books of the Old Testament from Moses. Excuse me, I meant Moses. Five books of Moses. And then did David have judges written down yet? Was Joshua there? Probably. We don't know. But somewhere in there, you know, we definitely had the five books of Moses. Does he have all of 2 Samuel? He can't. It's about him. It's his life. I mean, he was living it. He can't, it can't be about him. Uh, so so um, when he's saying this again, the emphasis is not on anything narrow, but on the whole. That the happy human being, the one who is blessed in this life, is the one whose delight is in what the Bible actually says. All of it. All of it. Now, let me emphasize here, delighting in the Bible of Jesus Christ is not easy. It's not even really fun right away. There's a certain energy, I would say. You, know, you can find some joy in it. You will. But it starts by discipline more than by just pure inspiration. The inspiration comes after you discipline yourself to read it and to say it out loud and to believe that it's true about you. Then the inspiration, the spirit that is these words in you starts to come out. But first, that spirit must discipline you to go and learn, which usually means making life so hard you have no choice but to open the Psalms at long last. And finally you open them and you begin to say something and then the ray of light exposes itself in your heart, not from you, but to you. God the Father sends that beam down inside of you to awaken you yeah? as you pray these words. I said it in the announcement too. This is so important. Why am I emphasizing praying out loud the words of Scripture? If you read something on a page, you get it once. If you read it out loud, you get it three times. You get it once as it goes in your eyes, and then it has to work. It has to go through your brain and back through your brain again to get out your mouth. So it's like doing twice things in your brain, even more so, and then you can't help but hear it. And so it's coming back in again. So you're getting this trifold compaction of the truth in you, from you, around you. You are, in fact, Jesus' body at that moment. United to his everlasting prayer and triumph and victory, fulfilling what he has told us we will do as a people, which is to confess his name in spite of all the world's attempts to silence us. Ah, that's what it is to delight then in the scriptures to know that's why we're here. That's why we're here. 
Now, let me suggest again, though, that to meditate on the Bible day and night is a bit much for most 40-hour-a-week jobs. It, it is. And I'm, I'm trying to do it within my job, and you pay me to do it, and I don't get enough of it. There's just too much demand in this modern age. It's, it's a complicated life we're living. But let me suggest to you, the reason we're looking at the Psalter this week, and we're not really even looking at it, I'm just talking about it, is because it's the easiest way to meditate upon the scriptures day and night. You ready? You got your pen and paper ready? I'm going to make it so easy. It will require like, like this much discipline, okay? So can I find something light, okay? So like lifting this book with one hand takes like this much discipline, right? Like if I was a complete weakling, I couldn't do it. So a complete weakling may not be able to do what I'm suggesting, but you're not a complete weakling. So what you're going to do is this, this year, with us as a congregation, you're going to read Psalm 23 every morning out loud. Psalm 23, it's so easy. It's so good. Jesus Christ is your shepherd. You're not going to lack. He's going to bless you with everything he gives you and goodness and mercy going to follow you the rest of your life. And you get to believe that every morning. First thing, huh? you're meditating on the word of God day and then night. We're going through Psalm 1. Let's grab hold of it. Take it home. Say it at night. Believe that it's about you. So let me rewind this a second. Back to verse 1. Blessed is the man. That's you. The moment you enter this Psalter, it's for you. It's to you. It's God's gift. And there is no like trick here. There's no test to see if you really mean it this time. Just put the words on your lips, knowing Jesus said, seek his face, and you're going to do it. And these words will change you for the better. Again, meditating day and night. Psalm 23, morning. Psalm 1, night. Whole congregation, one year. I challenge you. I dare you. And I even will tell you that if you can't do it, you're just plain lazy. Two psalms, three minutes morning, three minutes evening. If you can't do it for us together, you don't want this altar to last. You don't. You're just here for the show. I know what? Repent. You're not just here for the show. You're here to live forever. Ah, so meditating day and night. The goal this year, if you'll do this with me, if you'll just do those two Psalms every day and every night, is you won't help yourself. You'll just have to have more. It's just, you'll just get hungry. And like one of the Psalms next to it, 24, 22, you're gonna be like, what's that say? And you're gonna be like, whoa, I needed that today. How did God know I needed that today? Well, that's how he does it. Get in there. It's, it's food for the road. Psalm 23 and 1, day and night. Now, what are we not to do, though? Notice how the Psalter doesn't open with, here's who you are. Do this. It's here's who you are. That's a fact. You're going to do this. That's a fact. But in between is a big, don't do that. There's three things. It's a beautiful poem. Notice the walking, the standing, the sitting. Notice from going somewhere to going nowhere to being stuck. And how does this happen? One step at a time, you become a different kind of per person by who you are surrounded by. I'm going to be very careful here and caveat this. There's a lot of nonsense out there about toxic personalities. It goes kind of like this. Everybody is the cause of all your problems. They're toxic people. You're not. And we know that because you're here and we're talking to you and you're paying us money. And so we'll tell you, you're not toxic and everybody else is. And so you need to go and get rid of the toxic people in your life. And then you'll be happy. 
you can't remove all the toxic people from your life if you go outside your house. And if you stay alone by yourself, guess what? You just trapped yourself with one. So it really isn't about that, what I'm going to say. But there is a fact that bad company ruins good character. It is pretty observable that you are a reflection of the five people you spend the most time with. Like the more time you spend with them, the more you're going to laugh like them, you're going to talk like them, you're going to think like them. Those are all true things. Are there such a thing as toxic people? Are there people with such a demonic psychology that all they care about is malice and destruction? Yeah, absolutely. I'm almost telling, I told this story before. I couldn't believe this. I went down to the, the, the police station number one last year because they were having an event to talk to the community because the community was repeating what they were hearing from the TV, which was defund the police. And so I mean, you haven't heard that for a while because the TV hasn't said it for a while here, right? We just do what they say. And the more you realize that, the more you won't want to hear what they say. But I went down to, to see the actual thing in my city. I know Minneapolis is in flames, but Rockford's not burning yet. So I, I, I go down and I'm in there and I listen, I take notes and, you know, I tried to kind of understand the room. It was really a fascinating experience, but the, the most telling thing of all. So there's this way that our city allows for the reporting of a, a violent police behavior or city official behavior that is not becoming what we would want someone to be. I don't think it's bad. We want our cops to have standards. That makes a ton of sense, okay? But here's like an anonymous phone line of some kind, an anonymous computer, where you can call in and you can say everything that they did. And the question that was asked from the floor was, what if somebody lies when they do that? And our mayor said, oh, I don't think anyone would lie. Now I'll tell you right there, he's an idiot. He's a fool. He's got a fool for a mayor. Or he's a liar. You pick. I'm going to call him a fool for now. Men lie all the time. Blessed is the man who walks not in those words. That's the first line. Not in the counsel of the wicked. The one who doesn't listen to what the liar says. And this is the big trick right now. You're going to hear me complaining about screens and devices and the internet and a bunch of other stuff. But you know what? All of that is just the way they're getting you to listen to them. All the tools and toys, they're just things. It's the messages that those who make those things and run those programs have decided they want you to believe regardless of what you want that are now coming down the pipe the fire hose 24-7 to everyone and especially to any child that's staring at this thing all the time. Their brain is being formed by not Christians all the time. Now, does that mean you won't be a Christian? No, fight back! You, every one of you, fight back! Put it down, read a psalm. It isn't that putting it down fixes it. It's that you need something else to find blessedness. You keep seeking it in the world and the world doesn't have it. You keep seeking it in the counsel of the wicked, and they counsel you folly. So because we have listened to the wicked and sat with them in counsel for so long in this country, in one generation, we have moved from a civilization that believes in and promotes marriage as a family value and the future of reality for everybody, always, to a generation that is officially going to begin lopping body parts off of small boys in the name of science and love. Just like they did in Germany in 1923 
and 25 and 27. Now, if that doesn't tell you where we are and who we are, you need to read some more history. The fact is we've listened to wicked counsel for too long, and now we are standing with them in their way. So you go to the world and you find you're in a path and there's a bunch of other people on this path and this path is filled with people who are sinners. They're doing things that are hurtful. Toxic, we call it. Sinners, they do things that are hurtful and you're standing in their way. So if you try to stop them, what's going to happen? If you won't take a stand with the rainbow as they teach it, we teach it as a different thing. It's in the Bible, you know. You won't stand with their rainbow. Now you're in their way. Yeah. You don't want to be there standing in their way. We're there. Our fathers put us here as a group, as a whole. So again, it's, it's repent and get out of the way. Uh, stop sitting with them, actually, is really what it is. The next one is sits in the seat of scoffers. And this is one, when you hear me preach this, if you think I'm talking to you, just know I'm talking to me first. This has been so huge for me this summer. I went to a, a good conference, a good Lutheran pastor conference, but I noticed something that I've always known, but it bothered me more than ever this time. It's that when we Lutheran pastors get together, all we do is despair and scoff. That's how sad we are. That's how afraid we are. That's how uncertain we are about whether our congregation will pay us next year or even wants us to come next week. Because frankly, the way a lot of pastors get treated is as a punching bag for everybody else's problems. It's supposed to be there all the time for everybody. And if you don't notice somebody else, it's your fault and you're in trouble. It wears down on guys over a while, and when the churches begin to get emptier and emptier, where the kids are off doing everything else except for coming to church, and when you go to these events and all the people over you tell you how you just got to try harder and be a better person, eventually you just drink your beers together and make fun of everything. But see, then what are you doing? You're sitting in the seat of scoffers, aren't you now? I was. I am. I have. I want to stop. I want to stop thinking that a funny quip that makes fun of how sad it is is a good thing to do ever. If it's sad, I'd rather weep. And I'd rather smile because I'm actually happy, not because I can't handle the depression. Now, I'm not telling you I've even beat this myself, right? What I'm telling you is that blessed is the man who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. So if you find your mouth scoffing, just recognize how far you've come and how much you need to pray Psalm 23 every morning and Psalm 1 at night this year. Easy peasy. Here we go. Yeah. It seems big. It's really small. He's done it all, and yet we can't ignore it. Yeah? So don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Stand in the way of sinners. Sit in the seat of scoffer, but turn your attention to the Bible and meditate on that day and night. The word meditation is one that, that we want to take back to because, oh, I want to show you. I mean, I do it sometimes. I, you, you go out. By my, you guys have seen my lake now, right? I'll sit on a little yoga mat out by my lake. Uh, I did this. I mean, I, I used to work on mindfulness. I do up to an hour sometimes, silently, just trying to calm my spirit and seek peace. Uh, it, it was interesting. But I'll tell you, the discipline of just opening the Bible is much faster. <laughs> it really is. Like you can do it at a stoplight. Uh, you know, so, but meditation then isn't just to sit and contemplate. Contemplation is that. Meditation is to bring your mind and your heart to the same place. To bring your mind and your heart to the same place. That's it. So you can read without meditating on it. And you can meditate without reading. But reading and paying attention while you do it, meditation. Blessed, happy is the one whose meditation, whose heart and mind come back to the Bible throughout the day. 
Yeah? And again, this year is going to be about making that easy. Well, easy is a bad word. Simple. Make it simple. All right. So we've talked a lot about the tree, verse 3. So I'm going to let that go by for right now. Just notice though, the leaf does not wither. Your congregation can't close unless you choose to close it. And you do that by deciding to not believe these promises are true. And as a result, hoarding your wealth rather than investing in the actual congregation's future. That involves time, talent, and treasures, but it definitely involves treasures. And I can tell you for a fact, I have never been in a single congregation where anybody was actually sacrificing as the congregation to have the money at the congregation be more than enough. Usually instead what we do is we sit back and we wait for a problem and then out of our bounty, we'll fix it. But we worry the whole way and make budgets to scare ourselves and tell stories about how bad it is the whole way and count numbers the whole way. So I don't mind if you want to save the money till the end of the year. We put it all in then to fix it. Just let's not be afraid of it. Let's not be afraid of it. There's more than enough for it. We shall not wither on this corner. And even if they were to come and do something to try to make us wither, let's invite them to come and shut us down. You know how many people are listening to the pastor's sermons who got shut down in, in Canada? You know what happens if they shut us down? How much I got online for them to find? You know how famous we become immediately? I hope they shut us down. We'll have such a voice. They're not going to do that. What's going to happen instead, again, is we're going to grow together as a people who, even when our enemies come in, we welcome them with charity, a smile, and winning words. So that eventually... They have to join us or at least say, nothing wrong with that guy. That is, again, the promise that the Psalters give you, that your God will make you that kind of a person. Not sinless, but wise, wise. And there is a difference. Tree, by streams of water, you shall not wither. All that you do, you prosper. Okay, I don't want to waste too much time on, on this here. I don't want to take too much time on this because we've, we've gone far enough here. Um, in the other sermon, though, I spent a good amount of time on this word prosper. I talk about the prosperity gospel, how wrong that is, how prosperity has to be taken back from them by us. We need to believe that the prosperity God promises is here and it's faith in him so that rich or poor, I am confident and at peace with God and able to walk beside my neighbor in integrity. Does that sometimes come with wealth and health? Yeah. Does it sometimes come with poverty and pain? Yeah. Now you walk through fire all the way. But you prosper by knowing, what I say at the start, your pain has a half-life. Your pain has a half-life. The wicked are not so. That's all they get. They're like chaff the wind drives away. Chaff's a little bit of the grain that is light on the outside of the kernel. It hangs in the air longer than the kernel. The kernel falls, the wind catches the chaff, blows it away. Smart farmers have a fire waiting right there. And then they pick up all the grain off the threshing floor. They figured that out long ago. We got like gins and things for this now. It's different. But... The chaff, nobody wants the chaff, and the wind blows it away. That's how it is for every person out there right now who's trying to live their life, trying to figure out what truth is without the Bible. They find all sorts of stuff, and they're like, this is it, this is it. You know, I've, I've got five different medicines I'm taking for COVID every day. I get one of them from Canada, one of them from, from Argentina, and they all come online, and, and we're sorry enough to fight back. I mean, like, like just don't hurt yourself. The wicked listen to every story that comes by as if it has the same truth. The Christian learns that there's a lot of liars and will test their truth with our own. But they expect them to blow themselves away. Yeah? 
They will not stand in the judgment, verse 5 says. That's really about the last day. But it also can be about what they build now. It's common sense. If I try to build a building without the corners supported, what happens to the building? It falls down. If you try to live a life of dag nasty and total actual evil, saying it's good the whole way, the result will be evil upon your head. Your ignorance and your boasting doesn't stop it from being evil, right? So, so those who reject what God has clearly said, murderers, thieves, adulterers, and those who want to do such things, who refuse to let us not do such things, they will perish in the judgment of Jesus Christ on the last day. And this is good news. This is when we'll be free from them. Nah. For now, we pray they would repent and join us. That day, we say goodbye and good riddance. Hallelujah, even on that day. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Because the Lord knows the way of the righteous, it says. I skipped a little bit. The congregation of the righteous. So you have the judgment day in verse 5. And you have the congregation as well. Think of that as the community. I'm going to try to say this more often. I want to talk about the St. Paul community. But I don't mean like your standard community church. I mean that we are a communion of people. We come here for communion. That makes us, because we have communed together, a community. And as a community, sinners shall not be allowed to stand among us. Now, you have to roll back your Lutheran doctrine for a second. You put into the word sinner like so much dogma that you can't let this verse just mean Evil people won't like your church. You with me? Evil people won't like your church. They won't stay. They won't stand with it. They'll come in and they'll leave and say, that was awful. I'm not going back. And you need to know that's good. That's what God wants. I mean, he doesn't desire the death of the wicked, but he much less desires that you become wicked like him he would much rather you stay in the righteous way of trusting in Jesus than let the wicked one come in and change you. I'm not going to name any names or any doctrines right now, but I can tell you in the last week, I have had this community advocate that I do things for us that are against the Bible in such a way that if I were, I think I'd be sending us all to hell. And someone comes up and just says, I think that's the way it should be, Pastor. That won't stand here. I was gentle. I was kind. Person wasn't happy. What am I going to do? What are you going to do? You've already seen it. People leave for the daftest reasons. People come to this church for good ones, though, right? Have you noticed that? Who's here and why? What are they here for? To be blessed by the scriptures day and night. To stand in the congregation of the justified and to know that you do. Which means knowing you are a sinner, but you're not going to flaunt it here. So what again is it talking about? The one who flaunts his sin shall not stand in the church. He won't be able to. Instead, right, the Lord Jesus, he knows your way, the way of the righteous. Here righteous is justified. And here that again is promise. You're the blessed man that God, in fact, knows your path. He sets your steps. He has made your way straight. Even though the road is wide for everybody else, you've got a narrow one, and it goes straight through the middle as long as you walk where he has told you to walk. Don't walk in the counsel of the wicked then. Don't stand in the way of sinners. Don't sit in the seat of scoffers. Those things will perish. 
All right. We have a few moments left, and I'm going to turn corners to the Ephesians text. And we're going to let Jesus praying in the garden and elsewhere just kind of be there for us in the background today. Um, the manhood of Christ in prayer is such a valuable thing. But I want to give fair attention to the Ephesians text. Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. Because here is where we take that statement of the Psalms. That you're a tree by good water that's never going to get blown over. While all your enemies who are outside of Christ are like the chaff falling off the wheat. I mean, notice the distinction there. Yeah, big tree, a little piece of fluff. Nah. Since that's true, what do we look like here? And while I'd love us all to jump right back into the life of the Psalter and immediately be like, oh, it makes sense. It's going to take discipline to get there. You're going to have to exercise those muscles. What Paul's going to say here is very, very straightforward. And he's going to tell you, exercise those muscles in the Psalter. But first, he's going to warn you again about where we live. And some of the same language about the wicked, only from a different kind of direction here. So verse 15 says this. First, look carefully then how you walk. Notice Paul, just like the psalmist, says that the Christian life is a walk. It's, it's, it's a moving from one place to another as yourself. And you can do it in more than one way. There's a good way and there's a bad way. There's a healthy way. There's an unhealthy way. He says, be careful about it. Like, like walking isn't natural if you're going to do it the right way, the Christian way. Because, well, there's a lot of fools out there. He says, look how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. The word there for wisdom is sophos. It's the common word. It just means to be wise. The, uh, the word there for unwise is ah sophos. So you get it there very well. The English sounds like the Greek. It doesn't mean don't be a fool. He'll say that in a moment. It just means don't ignore the wisdom. That's where it starts. Don't be unwise. Instead, believe this. And here's where you should really believe this. How You've been going to church your whole life. You know what? Church promises to make you wise. The Bible promises to make you wise. So if you don't yet feel wise at all, well, again, don't we need to repent? Because these are promises. We're not going to make it happen. But we can say, well, I must not have been listening, Lord. Huh? And that's what he wants us to do here is for all of us to recognize that we do that over and over again, that we're never wise enough. And you start reading the Proverbs, it'll tell you, he who thinks he is wise in his own eyes is a fool, right? So you never want to actually be like, I'm wise. But I will again say there are moments where things happen that once upon a time I would have been thrown off my course by. And now I at least walk away knowing I know what happened and I handled it like a Christian. That's the kind of walking it's talking about. Yeah. Doesn't mean I never get flustered. I sure get flustered. I go off and deal with it later. But when I'm in that moment, again, I'm able to perceive because of the words, because they've prepared me for the moment. They've told me about what's going to happen. It's like future telling, but not. It's just life explaining. And in this then, I, I've, I've talked too long before the end of the verse. You're supposed to do all of this, making the best use of the time, verse 16, because the days are evil. I, uh, let me just tell you, you don't believe that. Let me write it down. The days are evil. Write it down. Look at it every day this week. You just don't believe it. You can't. We're Americans. It's too good here. Uh, we don't see it. It's getting more crazy. You're like, why are they doing this with the oh, that's, and I don't understand. 
that's just the surface of this thing. The guys last night, you know, we have our Sons of St. Paul, which is a Saturday evening, just kind of get together for any guys that want to come. Um, I don't usually go. I'm a little tired. Um, but uh, they got together last night and they were reading about the promises of punishment upon the people of Israel when they refused to follow Jesus. And one of the promises is that their enemies will surround their cities hem them in, and before they're out, they'll be so starving, they'll eat each other, including their children. This happens twice in Israel's history. They eat their children. So why do I say that? The days are evil, and you don't believe that right now because it's been a nice, long summer. It's been a nice, long summer. I can't tell you when winter will come, but I believe it's coming. What does that mean? It means that you need to walk as one who is wise and not as one who is unwise, because you can't just walk out on the street and believe everyone's telling you the truth about what they're selling you. <laughs> yeah. So then, do not be foolish, it says in verse 17, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I think that's pretty clear. Read the Bible. And you want to understand what God says? Read the Bible. Yeah. And now you have this interesting dichotomy here. It seems a little out of place, actually, because drunkenness is such a hot topic. Why would he just drop this topic of drunkenness in the middle of it, especially since he's going to go on and not really talk about drunkenness at all? It's kind of interesting. But I think he does give us something very, very helpful. Um, it says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Now, here's the thing about alcohol. Everybody and their mother has a view of alcohol from the Bible based on one verse. And there's lots of verses. So if you want all the verses... Well, then you need all the verses. And I'll just give you the spectrum. Beer is a brawler. That means if you drink too much, you're going to be a jerk. Give wine to those who are perishing, that they may drink and remember their misery no more. Well, it sure sounds like you're supposed to have at least a full glass. Yeah? So he's not bashing alcohol just because, but he does give us a fair warning. And the translation doesn't help where it says, for that is debauchery. The language there is more like, for in it is disillusion. Not disillusion, but disillusion. The falling apart, the complete spreading out until it is no more. And if you've watched someone try to heal their life with alcohol, that's exactly what it is. Disillusion, just further and further away from themselves, burying their pain beneath a numbing toxin, which again can gladden your heart with your meal and your feast, no problem, right? Bad medicine. Do not take bad medicine, maybe is one way to say this. But instead, instead of seeking to put your pain somewhere in this world, he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, that sounds good. We don't talk that way much, do we, Lutherans? When was the last time you were full of the Holy Spirit? <laughs> Man, sound like a Pentecostal, don't you? You can't say that. In fact, you go to a Pentecostal church, and you're not one yet, and you were baptized as a baby, they'll tell you, you don't have the Holy Spirit. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You'll get prosperity that way. To do that, you've got to get baptized again. It won't do anything, but you've got to do it. And then, after that, you will have to pray really hard for a long time 
in the right way and stop all your sinning. And then you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit and you'll know it because you'll speak in tongues that nobody will understand. What many people do is they get very tired of this and they begin to fake it. What others do is they get inhabited by a demon and speak actual ancient babble. I don't like either of those options. I don't want those in my life. I want to be wise, not a fool. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit of the Bible, not any random spirit of anybody's teaching as he wickedly counsels his own good. So again, how does one do this? The beautiful thing is why this text here he tells you. Did you read on? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. What's the next thing he say? Addressing one another in Psalms. You want a guarantee of more Holy Spirit in your life? Learn to say the Psalms out loud. Talk to each other with them. Hi there, blessed are you, you're at church. Now, hallelujah, just that alone. That's your first start. And more and more comes. And there you know that in these words, with each other and as our prayers, when we spread out for our neighborhoods and our towns and our communities and people who are listening across the world, it's a great net of hallelujah and praise Jesus rising to him as he asks for it so that he will bless it because he's promised this is the blessing itself, not even that he would save us all from it, but that we would ask him to. We sinners who have no faith have faith. We sinners without spirit fill with the spirit and say, Jesus, save us. And then, poor Lutherans, we've spent so much time trying to believe in a God you can't pray to as if he'll answer. Let me tell you, he will answer. He won't answer every request on your checklist. He will answer every word of the Psalter. And many of your requests are there, but they're in a context that makes them more clean, I would say, clearer. How do you get filled with the Spirit? You put the Holy Scriptures into you, out of you, and into you again, addressing each other with these psalms. It says hymns and spiritual songs. So I went and did some research on all this music stuff here. You got a bunch of words. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody. Those are all different words. Giving thanks, that's a different word. And that's most of the, the, the praise. And, oh, in the, in the name of Jesus Christ. Hmm. Um, so, psalms. We'll start that word first. Psalms. If you go back far enough in history, psalms in Greek, psalmois, doesn't mean the Bible psalms at all. You know, it's, in, it's in the Odyssey. It's like from ancient Greeks. And interestingly, since it's a Greek word, the Psalms weren't called the Psalms until like 500 years before Jesus in Alexandria, Egypt, where they spoke Greek and translated the Bible from Hebrew to Greek for the first time, calling it the Psalms. And here we are today with the same word. But in the Hebrew, it's called the, the Tehillim, the Tehillim. And it means praises, but it's a different word than the word praise for Alleluia. That's also the word praise. Tehillim is the name of the book. But then most of the times you see the word psalm in the book, where it says like a psalm of David, a psalm of Asaph, it's not Tehillim. I know. Why did they do this to us? They did it in 500 BC. What are we going to do? But here it is. Okay. So it's Tehillim as a book. And then what David writes are called Mitzmors. Mitzmors. There's other types of songs in the book like Mitzmors. Let me suggest that, the, that Paul is not in these narrows. Paul means the book. Like really obvious by, you know, Koine Greek for all the Hebrews, they mean Psalms, book of Psalms. So that's what that word is for us. But then what are these other words? You have the, the hymns and you're like, that's a weird word. Hymns, a funny word. It's a Greek word. Humnois, humnois. 
H-U-M-N-O-I-S, hum noise, hymns. What it means is a song with accompaniment, right? So your psalms are a book in the Bible that you can read. If you would like it to be a hymn, you sing it with an instrument. Now it's a hymn. And we call these things that we sing with instruments in our hymnal, hymns, so that's fine. Yeah? But understand that the, the real difference here is just the addition of the instrument to the process. Yeah. Then you have the hoidois pneumatikois. Another word for song on its first meaning. So when I, when I do this, I go look at my Greek dictionary. I have a couple of them. And like your English dictionary, it'll have the word. It'll have like number one, meaning. Number two, meaning. Like down to seven. And like for all of these, the first meaning is song. That's right. But if you go further, you find out they're all different. <laughs> they have different edges again. So we have psalms in the Bible. We have things that we sing to instrumentation. And now we have these songs of the Holy Spirit specifically. And if you go deeper into that fifth meaning of it in the dictionary, it tells you it's poetry. It's poetry. So what are poetries of the Spirit? The Song of Hannah, the Magnificat, the Nuke Dimittis, these passages of the Bible that are easy to memorize because they're songs. And he wants us to know them and speak them to each other. Psalms hymns, spiritual songs. He says, singing and making melody in your hearts to God. Those two words, singing and making melody, the first one means with your voice, and the second one means with an instrument, with accompaniment. Yeah. So sing with your voice, have music with it in your hearts. It's for the sake of the word in your heart. The great catastrophe of the modern revivalist movement, which is the one that puts the band up front and says, if our church is going to be good, we have to have a band up front. Otherwise, it'll never work. The, the sad thing of that movement is they understand how powerful making the congregation, the choir, can be. But then rather than do it so you'll sing the best words, they just sing whatever tunes you like and whatever gets the most people to come. Not a good plan. Not a good plan. You look at where we are as parachurch and church bodies in America right now. You look about which pastors are prepared to help you say no to gene therapy or walk in a way contrary to the mainstream and you're finding fewer and fewer voices. Fewer and fewer voices. Why? What are we afraid of? What do we believe they're going to take away? Or what have we stopped knowing is really what I want to say. What have we stopped knowing? Address one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, make a melody in your heart to God. What we've stopped knowing is that the music doesn't matter at all. That the fun and games and the entertainments and the friendships, the sports, all of it is for the fire. We've stopped knowing that. It's not you can't do these things. It's that when you do them to the exclusion of meditating on the Bible day and night, they tend to destroy you. And the Bible tends to redeem you. Hmm? Address one another with such good news, and the result will be giving thanks. It's a fascinating word here, too. Eucharisto. You ever heard the word Eucharist before? It's a way of talking about the Lord's Supper. In the Anglican Church, Lutherans do it, too. Eucharisto, it's a Greek word. It means to give thanks. But it's, it's more than just an attitude of gratitude. You've heard that one too, I'm sure. Uh, harder to pull off than to say to somebody. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, it's, it's actually the word obligation. You know how when someone does something for you and you feel indebted to them? 
and you want to make you want you want to give something back in some way, right? It's kind of that. It's an obligation to know that God is your God. You're not free from him. You are obligated to him. Now, the great news about this is that like, he's like, it's all promise, it's all mercy, it's all good. The rest of your life, I'm with you. That's a good place to be obligated. Yeah? Um, but this is it. We will be glad of our obligation. Not, how do I say this? Not how soon is the service over. But, oh man, I don't want to leave yet. When we change that in our hearts, just about coming and going, it won't matter Again, how many people are in the pew? Because our prayers will be why we're here, and our prayers will be scriptural answered prayers, and the right number of people will be in the pew for the sake of this little ship to sail through these tides with you having people at church who see you, who know you, who love you, and more than that, who know the Bible. Who know the Bible. Mm. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus. A word about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is the, the final bit. Um, that's a really important phrase. Submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ. It does not mean everybody submits to everybody all the time and nobody ever has any willpower whatsoever and we're all a bunch of limpers to doormats. It means you learn to see the relationships that you're in. And if you're supposed to lead, you lead. And if you're supposed to follow, you follow. And you recognize that who you lead and who you follow are not perfect because they're sinners just like you. But that wisdom understands that Christ will see us all through it. And so open the Psalter and pray it once more together because tomorrow is a new day and one of them we're going to live forever. Oh, we already do. One of them we're going to feel it. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Please rise for prayer.